Good morning. I am Pastor Mike, and I have the privilege to bring to you this morning's word. Several years ago, I had this student who was uh, a little socially awkward. Uh, he didn't really know how to act around others. He didn't know how to read a room or read a situation. Um, our church had open gym where students and adults could come and play basketball. Now, this is church basketball. And if you're unfamiliar with church basketball, let me explain a few things to you. This is not the NBA. It is not collegiate. It is not high school varsity. It is not even JV. All right? The goal of open gym basketball is to have fun, to laugh at each other, to sweat a little bit, maybe to make a basket. Right? But the most important goal of church basketball is don't get hurt. So this awkward uh, student shows up one day. And he plays like an absolute madman. He was super, super aggressive. He was calling all these really cheap fouls. He would never call a foul on himself. He was argumentative. He was whiny. I had to talk to him several times throughout the night about the way he was acting. Truthfully, he kind of ruined the fun and the purpose for the night for everyone. Even on the drive home, I was thinking to myself, I was like, man, what? Why did this kid act the way that he did? The next week, this kid shows up, and walking behind him for the very first time, his dad comes. And upon seeing his dad play, the answer to my question I had last week about why this kid played the way he did was answered. He was a little mimic of his dad. Right? The way he played, his attitude... He learned it all from watching and being just like dad. That's where he picked it up. I've been doing student ministry for a very long time. And the longer I do it, the more I realize just how important family life is. How important mom and dad are in the life of a young person. If you look at all the research, hands down, the most greatest influence in a young person's life is mom and dad. And that's the way it should be. That's how God designed it. But here's a sobering question. What happens when that young person's parents aren't around? Or when they simply aren't present in their child's life? What happens when their parents have a ton of undealt with brokenness and unhealthy habits? What if mom and dad have a ton of baggage in their life? I mean, what happens to that child, that student? I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 14. This morning, Pastor Kirk said that I could preach over whatever I wanted. So our goal today is to look at this next generation and what does it mean and look like to stand beside them. We're going to look at the biblical account of the death of John the Baptist today, which is actually going to show us what not to do. But before we get into the account, we need to look at and we need to understand the context and what's happening, the who's who and what's going on here. So there are a number of players in this account. We have Herod Antipas. We have uh, Herodias. We have Salome, the daughter of Herodias. And we have John the Baptist. We also have the guests and the party guests. But we're going to look at a few of these 
major players. And the first one that we need to look at is Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas, he was a tetriarch over the regions of Galilee and Perea around 4 BC. And a tetriarch meant that he is one of the four rulers over the four districts of Palestine that was under Roman rule. If you look at this little map there, you go back to the map, eh? Herod uh, reigned in those little purple regions in the middle there. And then his brother Philip is in the green, and we're going to come back to that in a second. So that's Herod Antipas, right? He was the son of Herod the Great. If you remember, Herod the Great was the man who ordered the killings of all the babies under the age of two in Bethlehem at the time that Jesus was born as the wise men were looking for him. The history of the Herod family is just simply filled with lies and murder and treachery and adultery. They were an evil family. And Herod Antipas, he was no different. He was known for his debauchery and his insensitivity. Now, you need to know that he is not technically a king, and he does not technically have a kingdom, because the Romans were the ones in charge and in control of the area. So he is placed in authority by the Romans, and he's given this title king here in Mark, um, because Mark kind of gave this title to, um, it's for the Roman audience, as they applied that title to kind of all of the eastern rulers at the time. So once again, technically he's not a king, he does not have a kingdom. Another interesting fact about Herod Antipas is that he was the one who would actually hear Jesus' case before his crucifixion, as Pilate tried to pass off the case to Herod. So that is Herod Antipas. Now, let's talk a little bit about Herodias. Herodias was originally the wife of Herod Antipas' half-brother Philip, right? He was the one who ruled in that northeast corner of Palestine. Now, Herodias was the daughter of yet another one of Herod's and Philip's half-brothers. So that means they were technically like half-uncles to Herodias. Herodias marries Philip. They have a daughter together. That daughter's name is Salome. She's going to play a big part in this story today. But Herodias, she divorces Philip to go marry her other half-uncle, Herod. Herod also divorces his first wife. Thus, in marrying, Herod and Herodias have committed adultery together, also a, a type of incest as well. Like I already mentioned, the Herod family, they're just kind of wicked and evil. Now, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, right? We have God's man, the prophet of God, right? He had warned Herod and Herodias of their sin, and he called them to repent. See, John knew that God hated sin, and sin does not honor God. John knew that the sin of the king, it would pollute the land. And John also knew that sin would set a precedent, and it would make it easier for the people to sin. So John, he boldly speaks out against the wickedness and the evil of Herod and Herodias' sin. And he does this both privately and publicly, like we're going to find out here. So that's kind of the backstory. Those are our players. And this account in Mark chapter 6 is actually kind of unique in the sense that this account is actually a flashback of something that has already taken place. You're going to see that in just a second. So let's go ahead and start reading Mark chapter 6 starting in verse 14. So King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. 
Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is the prophet like the one of the prophets of long ago. When Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. All right, so in Mark's gospel, we are at a point in human history where we are trying to figure out who Jesus is. Now, some said he was John the Baptist who came back to life, who at this point had already been killed, and everybody knew this. So Jesus and all the miraculous things that he was doing, some thought that he was John incarnated, which is actually kind of odd if you think about it, because at no point ever when John was on earth did he perform any miracles. Okay, some people thought that Jesus was Elijah. Now, Elijah technically never died. He was taken into heavy in a chariot. So some people thought that Jesus was Elijah who had come back. And then there was a third group who simply thought that Jesus was a prophet of the old, much like Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah. But when Herod heard about Jesus, he sided with those who thought that, John the, that, that he was John the Baptist. And why? Well, it's because that Herod was filled with guilt. And he's filled with fear because he was the one who actually killed John. And now here's the flashback of that killing. Look at verse 17 with me. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put into prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to, because Herod feared John and had protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So our backstory is starting to unfold a little bit here. The wickedness of Herod and Herodias was being called out by John the Baptist, right? The law of God is very clear. You have Leviticus 18, 16 and 20, 21, right? Incest was against God's law. Adultery was against God's law. They were living lives that were against the will of God. And the prophet of God, John's responsibility and his calling was to call them out on their sin. But we need to understand that calling out a king was extremely dangerous and extremely risky, right? Kings had absolute sway. That means that if a king wanted somebody arrested, they were arrested, no questions asked. If a king wanted somebody killed, they were killed, no questions asked. Whatever a king wanted, a king got. So John denounced this marriage to Herod and Herodias privately, but they're unwilling to confess their sins and repent. So now John denounces this marriage publicly, and this is just way too much for Herodias to handle, right? She had guilt, and this guilt was turning into anger, and now this anger was turning into hatred. She not only wanted John silenced, she wanted him killed. Herod, on the other hand, he didn't really seem too concerned with, with John's words, even if John was coming after Herod, right? John knew that, uh, Herod knew that John, he was a holy man and a righteous man, and he was not just somebody that you would kill because it could have major consequences, much like a riot from the Jews or something like that. So Herod has this plan to hopefully kind of protect John, and, and, but the whole point is to, uh, to, to help his wife not deal with this and not want him killed. So, John, so Herod sticks John in prison, and the hope is by silencing John, putting an end to his public speaking, 
Herodias's personal vendetta would be squashed. Herodias did not have the power to kill John, so what she did is she just kind of bided her time, and she waited for the perfect opportunity. Look at verse 21. It says, finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet of his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So Herod's plan, it actually doesn't work. It isn't enough to, to calm Herodias' anger and hatred. And she continued just to feed her grudge against John for publicly speaking out about his sin, about their sin. And church, I feel like we can learn a lot from this here. Like when we harbor guilt and hatred in our hearts, right, the enemy is going to use it to create more and greater evil in our hearts and our lives that are going to have greater consequences, right? And, and it's going to affect more and more people, which is you're going to see this play out here. But back to our account, Herod decides, hey, you know what? It's my birthday. I'm going to throw a birthday party for myself. So he has a birthday party. He invites all of the who's who around, right? All the movers and shakers in his region. And his hope is to entertain them, to impress them, to win their respect and admiration. That's his goal. Herodias, though, has a different scheme, a different agenda, and she's ready to implement this. Look at verse 22. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. So now we have entering into the count, Herodias' daughter, Salome. Now this is a daughter that she had with Philip, who was Herod's half-brother. And according to the Greek word that's used here, her, uh, Salome is in her middle teenage years. And Herodias' plan is pretty simple. She was to have her daughter Salome go out and dance before Herod and all of her guests, and all the guests. And this dance was meant to be shocking and provocative and sensual. And the all-male audience, they would have loved it. And Herodias knew that her arrogant husband would want to reward her. And that's exactly what happened. And at the end of the dance, right, Herod, in an attempt to flaunt his power and success to his guests, he says to Salome, ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And then he even adds an oath to this promise to show how serious it was. But if you remember, Herod actually is not king. He actually does not have a kingdom. And everybody knew this. But nonetheless, it was understood by everybody, and especially Salome here, that she could practically ask for anything she wants, and she's going to get it. So church family, let's just pause for a moment, and let's think about this. Okay, Herod is going to give Salome anything that she wanted. Now talk about an opportunity that could change Salome's life. Not only does she have the potential to not just change her life, but she could change her entire family's life. Her future children, their future, right? Depending on what she asks for, this is going to be huge. She could bring security to her family for a very long time. She could put herself in a position for success, maybe even fulfilling a dream or steps to fulfilling her dream. 
And I'm going to give you a second. I want you to think about it. If a king told you, I'm going to give you anything you want, what would you ask for? Would it have potential to better and to change your life, your family, your future? Now, Salome did what I expect any teenager to do. She goes to her mother and, and asks her for her help. She wants to know what she should ask for. And I'm sure Salome at this point has a million things going through her head about things that she could ask for. But she needed and she wanted her mother's help and advice. Look at verse 24. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. There was no hesitation for Herodias. She needed no time to consider other options for the benefit or the dreams of her daughter. Herodias took away this potentially huge opportunity. She took away her daughter's reward. Herodias's baggage, her hatred consumed her. And now it was not only affecting her life, but it is affecting the life of her daughter, Salome. Church, and just think about how deep Herodias' feelings are here. What a gruesome request. It's not just about killing John. No, I want his head on a platter brought to me. Verse 25. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want, you right, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So Salome does what her mother, mother requested, and she hurried to ask the king. And she probably hurried because she didn't want the king to sober up or to change his mind. And upon hearing upon this request, I think Herod finally realized just how foolish and how stupid he was to, for putting himself in this position. Herod had made a promise, and he sealed it with an oath. And there is no way to back out of this. A holy man who he had respected would be killed because he wanted to impress others. Because he didn't want to be embarrassed for not being a man of his word. So Herod decides to flex his power and authority by immediately fulfilling this girl's request. Look at verse 27. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back the head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So Herod sent most likely one of his bodyguards out who went and beheaded John. Now, time would have elapsed, so by the time this guy bodyguard would have came back uh, with this gruesome trophy, um, the guests would have been gone. So the head of John was given to Salome, who had taken it and given it to her mother. Herodias had satisfied her, her lust for revenge. And at what cost? At what cost? 
I mean, not only had her anger and her hatred just plagued her life for years and years, now Herodias had been cheated out of a reward. A life-changing reward was taken away. So her life is affected. And we also have her husband, whom she had bested, and now he lived in great fear and guilt because he killed a holy man. See, more and more people were being affected by Herodias' undealt with sin and baggage. And at the conclusion of this flashback, we read that John's disciples came in, they retrieved the body, and then they gave John a proper burial. That's the end of the account. Super fun and positive, right? You might be thinking to yourself, what a horrible story. Right? Why did we focus on this story today? What does this have to do with standing beside the next generation? Well, now we get to ask Pastor Kirk's favorite question. So what? So what? Here's a couple of things that stick out to me about this account and this next generation. The first thing is a personal, individual level. It really breaks my heart, the deep-seated baggage of Herodias. Baggage so deep, unconfessed sin so deep that it not only impacted her life, but her daughter's. And I'm sure Herodias loved her daughter and wanted the best for her. But Herodias could not see past her insufficiencies, her own hurt, her own brokenness. So instead of capitalizing on an opportunity and a reward that would have greatly benefited her daughter's life and future, it was wasted. A reward was wasted. How heartbreaking and disappointing it is to watch her mother's hurts and hang-ups not only affect her own life, but her daughter's life. And I recognize and I am very aware that we all have baggage and hurts and hang-ups. I have them for sure, and I bet you do too. So what entered my head was this question, and I pray that you will consider this question as well. I asked myself, Mike, what hurts and hang-ups do I have that I am passing off to my own kids? What baggage do I have that is impacting my kids in a negative way or taking away from them? What in my life needs to be dealt with? What do I need to heal from so it does not affect my kids? I hope you're asking yourself that same question. What are some of your insufficiencies, your hurts, your baggage that might be affecting the ones that you love. See, and I don't think that this is just a question for parents here, right? You may have a niece, a nephew, a cousin, a neighbor. I bet there is someone in the next generation that you care for and that you love 
and that you are impacting. So are you impacting them positively or negatively with your life? You see, we need to deal with and confess our sin and our baggage, not just for the sake of honoring Christ, but so that we don't pass it off to the next generation. The other thing that sticks out to me from this account, as I consider the next generation in our context here and today, and this is a corporate need, and it's this. Man, this next generation needs you. Yes, you. This next generation needs you. Right? In our neighborhood around this building, around Toledo, around your neighborhood, there are parents who are missing, who are simply not in the lives of their children. And there are parents and guardians who have not dealt with their past, their sin, their brokenness, and it is affecting their children the same way that Herodias' sins are affecting Salome. And it is affecting our next generation. Just last week, I was a part of a conversation where ultimately this exact same thing was happening. A guardian's decision was negatively affecting the children, and the children were missing out on opportunities. This is still happening. This is still happening. And from my heart to yours, church family, this is where we need to step up and fill in the gap. I desperately want to see us standing with families and showing them our faith. We need to show and to teach this next generation, not just about the knowledge of God, right? But what does it look like to follow God and honor God every day in every way? What does it look like to follow God when you're at Walmart? When you're at the grocery store? What does it look like to follow Jesus when you're speaking with, to another person? When you're interacting with the guy at Chipotle? What does it look like to follow Jesus at the gym or when you're interacting with the mechanic who's trying to rip you off? What does it look like to follow Jesus as you interact with our masterpieces down the street? This next generation needs you to show them what it looks like to honor God in every day, every life situations. And this is big. This is big. And it is going to take all of us to lead and to step in to be a part of the next generation. Married, single, young, old. Everyone is needed. Loving and getting to know this next generation, it doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to be scary. In my mind, I think the biggest thing that this next generation needs from you is your time. Your time. Let me give you some examples, and I pray that something resonates with you. After church today, you could go up to someone in the next generation, a student, a college student, a young married, and simply say, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm so glad you're here. Tell me a little bit about yourself. That's not too scary. You could take it deeper, right? Take somebody in the next generation out for coffee, out for lunch. Give them time. Ask them about their life. Don't do all the talking. Let them talk, right? And, and as you're giving them time, you share with them your faith. 
Next Sunday, instead of coming and sitting in your normal seat, intentionally choose to sit someone in, beside someone in the next generation. Worship beside them. Talk with them after the service. Next month, we literally have the next generation coming right here in Sports and Arts Camp. Volunteer. Give your time. Right? Rub shoulders with some, some of the next generation that you know, wouldn't normally Volunteer to help on Wednesday night kids club, Wednesday night youth group, right? We have several young people who help out in the sound room most weeks. Volunteer to go back there and to serve. Join the same team with them. Interact with them. Invite a young family out to lunch after church with you. Invite them over to your house for dinner. You got to eat anyway, right? Might as well do it with someone in the next generation, generation and investing in them. The next generation, they just love authentic relationships. Be honest, be real. You don't have to have all the answers. Nobody does. Just be with them. Show them your faith. Invite someone over to your house to watch your favorite team. Invite them over to play a game. Right? A lot of you actually have very specific skills and knowledge that you can pass off. You know how to fix a roof. You can fix a car. You know how to cook. Invite them to join you. Do you need their help? Probably not. But they need you. And as you teach them, they're actually learning a life skill that's going to help them. It's gonna, they're going to be better equipped, and you show them your faith. You can even go deeper with this next generation because they desperately need mentors. They need people to consistently and constantly gather around them, to be excited for them, to speak truth into their lives, to affirm them, to pray the Holy Spirit works inside of them. Maybe there's a student, a young family that God is putting on your heart to do that with and to do that with weekly, bi-weekly. I encourage you, walk in obedience. I've had a number of people in my life pour into me. And they encouraged me as a man, as a husband, and in ministry. And I don't think I would be where I am without them. They made all the difference. Because they did that to me, that's what I want to do to the next generation. I don't think you and I are going to regret loving and giving our time and showing our faith to the next generation. Right? This is a very biblical concept, right? Linda read it earlier, right? Deuteronomy 6. Moses and Israel knew that the key to teaching their children to love God was to teach them and show God in everyday life experiences. And this truth still holds true. This next generation needs you to be with them, to show them your faith in everyday life experiences. Will this be hard? Probably. Will it always be fruitful? Probably not. But this next generation needs you. Will you show them your faith? Will you stand with and for them?